0: We're back on Tom Knee's sheep farm on the Killary Fjord in Western Ireland. After the sheepdog Holly does her thing, corralling sheep by running in semi-circles around them. Holly. Tom leads a group of Notre Dame students to a pit for another kind of demonstration. There is a rise to the ground here and part of the earth looks like it's been ripped away. Underneath, there is rich, dark brown matter.
1: Now, um, so we're standing on a bog, okay, and um, we use all this for fire. So we cut it and uh, we dry it, and it's going to be used in the fire um, to heat the homes. Uh, I'm going to try and explain how all this kind of grows. Um, so see these old bits of wood? Um, this, this is called Scots Pine, and that's approximately about 10,000 years old. And this one here is a uh, silver birch, uh, maybe three to 6,000 years old. Um, so if you look down along there, you see the old bits of wood sticking out all over the place. Um, so this area would have been covered in trees at one time or an- another. Tom then
0: describes a most Irish tradition called cutting turf. The turf is actually peat, carbon-rich material formed over thousands of years, the Irish have been harvesting peat and burning it for fuel for generations. But that will soon change.
1: Basically, we're cutting a bit of turf now, uh, but the whole process is going to stop because of, of environmental reasons. Okay. Um, because the bogs now draw carbon. The, the scientists are saying that uh, all this bog land. Carbon uh, sink? Yes, carbon sink. Got you, okay. Yeah.
2: So, so, so the bogs are you're going no to. No longer going to even withdraw it at all. No, no. Got no, you, okay. No.
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah. So what do you do instead for yourself? Um, good question. <laughs> um, look, the, um, we're cutting by hand. Um, it's going to be quite difficult to stop. But uh, So this is for the older houses. So we're cutting turf here mainly for our mother's house. Um, so she's no other option and there's lots of people like her that have no option really but to burn fuel. Um, so we're not going to stop cutting turf anytime soon, by any means, but it is going to stop, and it's more so going to stop when the older generation are gone.
0: Tom just presented the crux of what's been a tense political and cultural dispute in Ireland in recent years. The practice of cutting and burning turf is being phased out. The university is helping to ease this transition and plan for what's next. But that's not the only way our students are caring for our common home. I'm Andy Fuller, and you're listening to East and West, Notre Dame in Ireland. If asked to describe the Irish landscape in a single word, most people would say green. How much green? Well... Let's just say Johnny Cash probably had it right. About 40 shades of green. Most of us think of the bright emerald green that covers the rolling hills and mountains in the western part of Ireland. But a big chunk of the emerald isle isn't really emerald at all. About 20% of the island is covered in a dark, almost brownish, forest green. These are the bogs And one of these bogs is where we caught up with Mariana Silva, a Notre Dame graduate student. Describe where we are right now.
3: Okay. We are currently in the edge of Clara Bog, uh, what we would call the marginal area of the bog, so it's quite literally on the margins between the fully peat-forming bog area and the, you know, wooded or um, more pasture-type farmland agrarian area. Classification-wise, we should start with the term peatland. Um, so a peatland is any type of landscape which has peat soil uh, underneath it as a characteristic And peat soil (laughs) is any type of soil that has a really, really high organic matter content and thus a high carbon content. And um, this means that it's able to store all that carbon for a very long period of time. It has to have, you know, limited oxygen conditions. Um, Typically it's very, very waterlogged and that's how you're able to get very little oxygen. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very rich dark, dark soil, um, almost black, if you were to look at it. And that is sort of the underneath of what is um, what makes peatland peatland.
0: A bog, then, is a type of peatland. And Mariana is studying in Ireland because, as we said, the island is very...
3: Boggy, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of that historically pristine bog land has been degraded because Ireland is quite unique. I think that there might be a couple other countries that did so but Ireland is very unique in the practice of cutting and burning what they call turf, um, just the peat soil. Um, So as a cultural practice it was you know there's a specific type of like hoe that they would use to um, cut rectangles of the soil straight from the bog and then they would just wait for it to dry, burn it in a fire, and that's how they keep warm at night, things like that. Mm. And then after industrialization, the process became systematized and used for powering plants and things like that. So entire landscapes here in Ireland have been cut, drained, degraded, um, and now we're left with this sort of effective (laughs) wasteland that we want to try to to rehabilitate.
0: It may sound strange, but peat is a source of national pride. Ireland has no coal and no oil. Its fossil fuel is peat, which is actually an early stage in the formation of coal. By producing energy using peat, Ireland reduced its need for energy imports. It was a symbol of self-reliance and independence from the early days of the Irish Republic around the 1920s. The government commissioned commercial harvesting, draining large swaths of bogs to reap the underlying peat. Soon, entire power plants fueled by peat became a source of needed electricity in Ireland. But there was a problem. Turf emits more carbon than coal when it is burned. And by 1990, the situation was becoming dire. It was that year that the city of Dublin banned the so-called smoky coal. In 2018, the main company that harvests peat for energy announced it was closing 17 bogs used for production. The remaining 45 will be retired in the next seven years. But nearly a century of industrialized peat harvesting has wreaked havoc on the bog lands. Mariana is trying to find ways to rehabilitate these ecosystems. We followed her one morning as she traversed the bog, walking on two-by-fours that were nailed together to form a sort of bridge network across the landscape. Researchers here walk on these boards to avoid stepping on the fragile sphagnum moss. Okay. Mariana is checking a series of instruments, gathering data on how the water in this bog mm-hmm. is moving.
3: I study ecohydrology, um, which means the coupled interaction between water movements underneath the soil that we're we're standing on here and the plant growth and chemical cycling that is intrinsically linked, I would say, with the water movement, you know, the the hydrology of of the soil. So getting all of that straight (laughs) with the end goal of being able to uh, control some of those Features like the water table, how high the water is up in in the soil, to see whether or not we can encourage sphagnum growth or we can restore previously destroyed or cut or like drained bogs to become sphagnum dominated and building peat again. Okay.
0: And that's really important mm-hmm. because if the bogs can start to rehabilitate, literally the whole planet will benefit. Bog lands have the potential to store more carbon than the world's rainforests. For Ireland, they play a key role in complying with EU carbon standards.
3: The role of bogs being carbon stores makes them worth protecting. And it's difficult when we talk about restoration because we're talking about rehabilitating a landscape that might take years and years of geologic time to get back to what we're thinking of a store, but trying to do that is still better than nothing um, from a lot of uh, scientists' perspectives. And then being able to keep that initiative going and encourage people to look in their backyard and be like, I live near a bog, I care about this area and you know, protect the areas that are left is also a big element of just studying you know what we have left and figuring out how to restore
0: the problem is many who live near a bog still rely on it for energy turf is still allowed to be cut and drained in rural areas and today some people who live in these areas view efforts to stop the practice as an assault on their way of life others like tom knee and his mother are aware of the environmental impact of the practice but don't have much of an alternative option Mariana is acutely aware of her place in the ongoing national dialogue.
3: It depends on who you talk to. Um, I've had conversations with a few uh, Irish people, young and old. Um, I had a a conversation in a pub with with a friend of a friend a couple weeks ago where she lives out, um, like I think her family's out somewhere in that so in our in our general vicinity um and she grew up you know with with turf cutters in her neighborhood things like that and she was really really excited when i said that i had come over here to to study the bogs she was like that sounds so cool i'm glad you really care like she was she was really invested in the work that i was doing and and was like i'm I'm glad that somebody is working on this i've also had conversations with um you know older generations of people who I almost kind of have to reassure that their lives were not the sole detriment to the environment or anything like i'm not blaming you i'm not pointing this finger um, especially because even the turf cutting practices that are happening right now relative to a lot of the other um, yeah detrimental actions to to the environment that you can take especially w- with regards to uh, peat burning making sure that the industrial aspect was stopped was the the heaviest hitter and even if small areas of the bog here and there are being cut away um, they're not being cut over completely and that already is a big enough difference that I can say you know this cultural practice is probably not going to go away I don't, I don't mean for it to go away completely I don't want to eradicate it even though in our numbers that's what we write down for ideal I will, like I still want to validate that, that, um, that history
4: Matthew Ashley. I'm an associate professor of theology at Notre Dame.
0: There's a broader context for Mariana's work. At Kylemore in Western Ireland, Notre Dame's students explore an idea called contemplative ecology through a course taught by Matthew Ashley.
4: It's, It's an attempt to put together two important sort of streams of of thought and practice in our world today, and and one is is the the need to have a deeper ecological awareness of our involvement in in the world and the way that our our actions are, are impacting the world negatively, and the other one is the long tradition of Christian spirituality and contemplation, and um, and putting them together, I think is uh, is sort of natural because both ecology and contemplation are about uh, in nutrition learning to pay careful attention to one's surroundings but they're also about seeing the whole and instead of the part I think what our time requires <clears throat> is yes, absolutely the best science and technology we can bring to bear and that's essential but I think it also needs to have a change of vision you know a deep sense of our affinity with the natural world um, and and that's what I hope that the students will at least get a taste of in this course, like to, to experience the natural world around us as, as a profound gift that God has given us and, and that a gift that, that we should be grateful for and, and that we should tend and, and, of course, hand on to our children and grandchildren. And So I sort of think of it as it, it's, it's kind of a background view that then if you put that together with the best technical and scientific school, uh, skills, which our students get um, in colleges of science and engineering, then then I think you have the possibility for for really creative sort of outside-the-box kind of solutions and even solutions that are willing to say, well, this might be a technology we can use, but maybe it's one that we shouldn't use given its impact.
0: That's a premise that informs the university's presence in Ireland, especially in the West. At Kylemore, a sustainability program ensures the Notre Dame impact here is a positive one. This is considered the cultural heart of Ireland, in part because of the pristine landscape. Through Kylemore, the university is forming partnerships to care for the habitat and its native species, like the Connemara pony. But a focus on sustainability can also be seen in
2: the east, So this is a great place. This is Father Collins Park, which is actually Ireland's first um, fully renewable, sustainable park, um, which was a big milestone. It happened in 2009, and since then it's continued to sort of be the gold standard for the parks that they have here in Ireland. Um, I think it's great because it incorporates green space and blue space. There's a waterway going through with constructed wetlands, and I think it's really important that um, parks continue to be sort of built to this standard in which um, it still has the public amenities, but also the ecosystem And the climate is really a focal point of how they built and planned and constructed this park.
0: Junior Kyle Bass is taking a different approach to studying climate change. He's part of a group looking at Father Collins Park in Dublin. Walking its trails, you can see construction cranes in the distance, erecting new apartment buildings. And it's directly in the flight path for Dublin Airport. The area is ideal for development, But Bass and other students are learning about the benefits of a more sustainable approach.
2: So we're looking across uh, Dublin's four local authority zones um, and seeing how each one has implemented what what are called nature-based solutions for climate change adaptation and mitigation. Um, So where mitigation is basically sort of uh, counteracting the effects of climate change before they happen. So things like carbon sequestration, um, you know, making sure that less carbon's in the atmosphere. And that can be done through, you know, the planting of trees, rewilding and supporting green spaces like this. And then also a big part of our project is looking at climate adaptation. So we know that climate change is already happening. Some of the effects are already being felt. Um, one of the most severe within Ireland and Dublin will be the flooding that um, occurs as a result of we- weather patterns and uh, sea level rising. So um, we think that seeing things like this that help Um, you know, capture water when it floods during the winter rainy season um, are really beneficial for the surrounding area as they'll reduce the amount of flooding, um, reduce the impact on people's lives, and ultimately really make a positive change for the community. So I think even though um, we sometimes think of the effects as, you know, a rural, uh, maybe a more far out in the country kind of problem, A lot of the damage is going to be felt in these areas close to the water where there's a lot of um, impermeable ground and impermeable paving. So places here that are going to really experience the brunt of the flooding, um, I think it's the most important to go ahead and prepare for that in advance. And when you can prepare in a way that incorporates nature and incorporates the climate um, into the solution, I think is really beneficial. (laughs)
3: And we have people like me who are you know coming all the way from the states and you know starting my my career here researching these blogs telling them you should not do that um so yeah it's it's a it's a big part of why i wanted to study the environment always came back to um care for the earth care for creation in in that um, theological lens as well so it was really cool to get that from my undergrad i i ended up here doing the Dublin Summer Program in 2018. I was just very interested in visiting at first, that was all it really was. But when I got here, I immediately felt like this could be a place that I could call home. And that was definitely facilitated by the Notre Dame community that was there back then and that is still here now. And then when I got here for my master's, I was happy to get the Nocton Fellowship, which was something that you can apply for at Notre Dame as long as you're in a STEM field. And that was what I think quite literally opened doors for me, because what I found was people here were so... They were reassured by the... um, steps that I had to take to apply for and get the fellowship that they knew, oh, she really cares about this. I, I really needed to show my investment in this country and, and the landscape of this country and my, my interest in being here before even stepping foot back in Dublin in 2021. Um, so I think that just really helped. Everybody that I talked to was like, oh, okay, I get I get it. You, you really mean to be here. You really want to be here.
4: I think sometimes when I teach about the environment, you know, there's a tendency just to sort of despair. You know, things seem to be so bad. And and I think at the end of the day, the, the Christian message is a message of hope. I mean, it, it has to be a realistic hope, and it has to be what Pope Francis calls a combative hope, that it's not just sitting in your chair and saying, oh, I hope things will turn out OK, but saying, I'm going to get out there and work. Um, that I think if, if they can uh, sort of build up that kind of combative hope and, and see that there are resources for seeing the world in a different way, um, th- then I'll, I'll feel like I've succeeded.
0: Next time on East and West, Notre Dame in Ireland... We complete our journey by visiting the East, Dublin. We're not we're not trying to sell you something. We're trying to say, okay, want to understand Ireland, here you go. It's here that everything is placed in context, both for Ireland and for Notre Dame. So Notre Dame is, is famous in Ireland not just for the college football but also for the education and
3: having places to be on both sides of Ireland is giving, like, you a very diverse experience in terms of what you're experiencing in Ireland. has enhanced my sense of what it means to be American because I'm also learning of, like, oh, what it means to be European.
0: Over in America, nobody's going to say to you, oh, you have an American accent. The minute you open your beautiful mouths here in Dublin, people are going to say, oh, you're American. That's next time on East and West, Notre Dame in Ireland.